Well, good morning, everyone. It's indeed always a pleasure to be able to speak to Houghton Wesleyan Church. You ever notice Pastor West always schedules me on the hottest day of the year? You know, I think this is deliberate. You know, um, here we are at the end of June. June is an auspicious month in our family. Uh, Miriam and I celebrated our 30th, 38th anniversary this month. Yeah, you can applaud. Go ahead. Come on. I'm not, I'm not that humble. That's fine. You know, 38 years of wedded bliss or being cellmates, either, you know, either one. I think you should check her palms because the stigmata are beginning to appear right now. You know. And it was also my birthday this month. I turned 60 this month. 60! I, I know. And I don't look a day over 65. It's just, you know, 60. You know, um, as I turn 60, I've, I've thought about, I need to avoid a common condition that I called grumpy old man syndrome, right? No one listens to me anymore. President Biden, he doesn't call, he doesn't write, he doesn't ask for advice, you know. No wonder this country's in such a mess, right? And everything's changing. And that makes me grumpy. Dogecoin, CBD oil and everything, fried chicken tacos. I have to relearn how to use pronouns now as a teacher. You know. Even the words that my students are using, they're changing. I mean, just when I was getting the, the hang of words like lit and fire, now I have to remember things like tea doesn't mean tea, thirsty doesn't mean thirsty, no cap doesn't mean you're not wearing a hat, right? I do quite like some of these changing words. I like the word yeet, because <laughs> it's so expressive and it's so useful. I mean, as a prof, I can go, I'm going to yeet this paper into the bin. That's great, right? But what really gets my grumpy going is the changing buzzwords from the business world. You know? and, and here's one that's entered common parlance a few uh, years ago. A game changer. A game changer. Every new product that comes out is a game changer. No, it's not. No, it's not. Uh, that new version of Windows, that's not a game changer. Okay, that's, that's one more iteration of operating system hell, let me tell you, okay. That's not a game changer. Right? <laughs> so if you reach out to me, so we can circle back and double click on that idea, and maybe take it offline and pivot in our strategy, you need to stop talking. <laughs> and that's when I punched him, Your Honor. I couldn't take it anymore. Right. A game changer. Um, well, this morning I'm going to talk about a real game changer. Interestingly enough, from maybe one of the most cliched and hackneyed uh, parables in the New Testament, the Good Samaritan. You know the story so well. It's prefaced by this brash young lawyer, just full of himself, coming up 
and testing Jesus. You see, that's not a good idea, right? That's not going to end well. That's like trying to test Eli Knapp about birds, okay? Let me tell you something. Birds test other birds about Eli Knapp. You know, you know have you read his new book? I'm waiting for the movie, you know. Um, that's not going to end well. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Notice what Jesus does not say in answer to that question. He doesn't say, my man, you don't need to do anything. You just need to believe. Hasn't Jesus read Paul? Hasn't he read Martin Luther? My good, somebody needs to straighten Jesus out when it comes to justification by faith. Let me tell you folks, no one is saved by believing in a doctrine. And if you think being saved by faith relieves us of the need to love God and our neighbor, you are fundamentally confuzzled about what doctrines are and how they work because they don't work like that. Back to the story. Like a good rabbi, Jesus throws the question back at the lawyer. What's in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer answers, I think, too quickly with a couple of well-known passages from the Torah. You shall love the Lord your God, you know, with everything and your neighbor as yourself. And I think, he, I think he answers too quickly because when he does this, he realizes he's caught himself in his own words. <laughs> and there are very few feelings in life worse than realizing the person who just created an intractable problem for you is you. Kind of like when the patrolman pulls you over and he says, you know how fast you were going back there? And you go, 15 over the speed limit? Well, that's kind of irresponsible. But if you go, not really, that's kind of irresponsible, right? Like, what can you say? For the lawyer, the bit about loving God wasn't the problematic part. Anybody can fake that. That's relatively easy to fake. But apparently he hadn't been doing very well when it came to loving his neighbor because the text says he wanted to justify himself. And he tries to do this by using one of the oldest tricks in the book. Let's argue about definitions. Right. Jesus, hey, come on. I know I said love your neighbor as yourself, but I mean, let's think about this. Who really is my neighbor? Maybe only Jews? Maybe just people who live in Jerusalem? Only those who deserve it? 
he's trying to find some wiggle room, right? You understand, he's trying to find a loophole in there. I know I said love your neighbor, but Jesus, let's not be crass literalists here. Neighbor, it's, it's such a squishy term. Could mean anybody, might actually exclude some people. You ever wonder why Jesus just doesn't go right to the heart of the matter and say, look, dude, your neighbor is anyone who needs your help, right? But I think an answer like that would be playing right into the hands of this definition game, right? Because then you can always say, well, yes, Jesus, but I mean, what do you, what do you mean by need? And what do you mean by help? Do they need my help or do they just want my help? Maybe I should help them by teaching them to help themselves and do nothing. It's a game of definitions. Jesus changes the game. He's not going to go down that road where truth dies the death of a thousand different definitions so the lawyer can find some wiggle room. Instead, he tells a parable as if to say, look, sport, I'm not going to define who your neighbor is as much as I'm going to show you what being a neighbor means. So the parable begins. You all know it so well. Robbers beat a man. They leave him half dead on the roadside. And along comes the priest from Jerusalem, someone who knows all the rules surrounding ritual purity. So he sees him there, right? He's like, is he dead? He looks like he might be dead. He smells dead. What should I do? I know, better not check. <laughs> you know, priests aren't supposed to have contact with corpses, right? The thing is, and this always surprises students who study Judaism with me, uh, Jewish law set aside all purity requirements when human life was at stake. You just have to set those requirements aside. And a priest would have known that. And if I'm doing the math correctly, 50% dead means he's 50% alive. You know. Jill Jordan, are you out there? Does that check up? Right. How could Jesus depict the character of this priest, a figure that represents expertise in the law, as just strolling by? Let me theorize something. Uh, when you're an expert in something, you know how to justify what you're talking about. You know how to create wiggle room, right? uh, whether it's accountants and lawyers that work for mob bosses, <laughs> you know, or building contractors that know that what they're doing really isn't up to code. You know how to find wiggle room. And can I just say, religious professionals are among the worst at this. Right. At, look, folks, at this stage in my career, if someone wants to call out my theology, I can cite some obscure author. I could start a podcast entitled, Let Them Die, Why Responsibility to Your Neighbor is Overrated. You know. 
Experts know how to do these things. Then comes the Levite. Levites weren't regarded as highly as priests. They were responsible for like performing the music during temple worship, maintaining the temple, and so on. I mean, all in all, a much more relatable character to the average person. But again, again, is he dead? I don't know, he might be dead. Better not check. And, and you see the rules for ritual purity for Levites, they weren't nearly as severe as those for a priest. So, so I mean, whatever excuse someone like this might have, that must have been really pretty lame. You know, dude, I just don't like that 50% dead vibe you're giving up. I mean, what could you say, right? You don't even check. Follow me really closely here, folks. The point of using these two figures is to mirror or illustrate what the lawyer was trying to do in attempting to justify himself and to say that everyone, priest, Levite, lawyer, whoever, can always find some wiggle room to do what they want to do or not do what they don't want to do. To yeet their neighbor into the bin. You know, you know, after studying and teaching theology my entire adult life, some of you have heard me talk about this before, I've come to the conclusion that most people use God talk to do two things. Uh, one is to ensure themselves of a soft landing in the afterlife. The other thing is to justify any kind of crazy idea that they have. I mean, the same people who make fun of Bible majors and going to seminary are the first ones to whip out a Bible verse in support of some idea they have. You've got a building campaign. Well, Nehemiah says, you've all heard this, right? Thanks for the exegesis. Finally, the Samaritan shows up. Here's where the game really begins to change. Most people, about the only thing they know about Samaritans is from that story of Jesus meeting the woman at the well. You remember that? Jews say we should worship here. We Samaritans worship at our temple on Mount Gerizim. Doesn't sound like a big deal to us, praise choruses versus hymns, right? Pineapple on pizza or not, you know. I mean, who cares, right? The thing is, and you wouldn't know this, the hatred, the hatred ran so much deeper than what you can imagine. Samaritans were called half-breeds, you see, because after the most important people were deported during the Assyrian conquest, those remaining intermarried with their captors. Uh, they were called traitors because a couple of hundred years before Christ, in dealing with the uh, aggressive Seleucid Empire, the Samaritans made deals with the Seleucids while the Jews lost their lives during the resistance. And they were called idolaters because they worshiped at this rival temple. Uh, you know, according to Jewish tradition, there was once this 
festival held in which 300 rabbis and 300 priests all came together and pronounced all the curses on the Samaritans all day. Can you imagine attending this political convention? Well, for our 458th speaker today, he hails from Hebron and he enjoys cursing, right? 600 speakers cursing. And you can see the results of this bad blood between Jews and Samaritans right through the Gospels. <laughs> to, make, to make someone out as really thoroughly bad, you just needed to add, oh, and he's a Samaritan. Right? Jesus' opponents say of him, he has a demon, and also what? He's a Samaritan. Right? Think about the fun you could have with this, folks. He's a Calvinist and a Samaritan. He's a, he's a Pittsburgh Steelers fan and a Samaritan. He's a Roberts Wesleyan grad and a Samaritan. Right. You just have to add this to make someone thoroughly evil. Right. But Jesus says, this man that you call a traitor, that you call a half-breed, that you call an idolater, he throws aside all attempts at any wiggle room and takes this man in and binds his wounds at his own expense. And when he acts like this, he knows more about my kingdom than what you do. This man. You see how shocking this would sound to Jesus' audience? That's the force of this, folks, when you read this. And you might think it's the most pedestrian parable in all the New Testament. That's how Jesus' first audience would have heard this. I have a couple of points here to make. First of all, loving your neighbor, really loving your neighbor, means getting your hands dirty. And it costs you something. Whatever more you spend, I will repay you. Growing up in the holiness tradition, and I know some of you can relate to this, we were really good at avoiding all the wrong people, and you know what I'm talking about, some of you do. Our teaching on sanctification convinced us that we were to be set apart from all the wrong people instead of convicting us that we were set for God's service in the world. We had no problem yeeting people with a song in our hearts. You know what I'm talking about if you grew up in this tradition. And being against things and being against people, that's the easiest thing in the world and it's the fastest way to build a church, by the way. Secondly, this kind of love is going to look pretty foolish to lots of people. You know, the Samaritan, he, he had no way of knowing how long that recovery would take. You know, someone looking on would have said, you know, your heart's in the right place, but man, have you run the numbers on this? You know, I think 
You never really love someone until you're willing to kind of act foolish on their behalf. I really believe that. You know, uh, back when I was trying to win Miriam's heart, I, I told her one time, I said, I said, Miriam, that girl over there, she just smiled at me. And she goes, that's nothing. When I first met you, I laughed right out loud, you know? <laughs> you never really love someone until you're willing to act foolish. Um, maybe you're a teacher trying something new in class. Uh, I like to use humor in my class. Big shock there, right? Because it helps people learn, right? And it's risky, but you try it because you love your students. And sometimes it bombs and you're sitting there and the, all the eyes are on you like they are now. <laughs> you're thinking, wow, this is what comedy hell feels like, you know? <laughs> Maybe it's much more serious business. Maybe it's putting yourself in harm's way for someone could be adopting high-needs children with all the expense and energy that that will take. Maybe it's entering the mission field and putting a big question mark over your family's future. It could be just befriending all the wrong people. What will my friends think? Someone looking on is going to say, that's kind of foolish what you're doing. And you're going to say, yeah, but love calls us to do this kind of thing sometimes. Well, let me see if I can land this thing, folks. Jesus is saying to the lawyer, I'm not going to argue with you about definitions. So you can figure out some wiggle room. I'm changing the game from legalism, from ticking boxes, to what my kingdom in fact looks like and when these folks of whom you're just sure don't know anything about it, when they act like this, they get it. Because when you see someone, even a Samaritan, acting like this, they're expressing the kind of love God has for us. You know, the ancient church interpreted this parable in such a way to say that the Good Samaritan was Jesus. And we are the person bloodied, half dead by sin, lying in the ditch. But instead of yeeting us into what we deserved, while we were yet sinners, the Son of God refused to wiggle out of his mission and gave up his own life to bind us up and to heal us, which looks like foolishness, but is the game changer. Well, there are lots of evangelicals here, which means that there are lots of Chronicle of Narnia nerds in the house. Do you all remember what the witch cries out when Aslan finally dies? Anybody remember that? The fool lies dead. The fool. What looked like foolishness to her, she doesn't realize that's the deeper magic that will change the game and the way her world works. Thank God the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom.
Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The lawyer answered, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus says to us, church, go and do likewise. No wiggle room. I thank you for your kind attention this morning. May God bless you. Thank you.